Thanks for checking out the weekly sermon from Church of the Resurrection. We pray that God will use this message to speak to you and help you grow in your faith journey. We'd like to invite you to join us next week at one of our services, whether in live worship online at core.org live or in person at one of our locations in the Kansas City area. Church of the Resurrection is one church in multiple locations. To learn more about our service times and ministries, please visit core.org. We hope you enjoy this message. My name is Anne Katobu. I'm one of the pastors here at Resurrection. As we continue in worship, I invite you to hear these words of the scripture. Our passage today is from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus' disciples came and said to him, Why do you use parables when you speak to the crowds? Jesus replied, Because they have not received the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but you have. This is why I speak to the crowds in parables. Although they see, they don't really see. And although they hear, they don't really hear or understand. May God add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the understanding of the scripture. More than three billion people claim to follow Jesus. But aside from a few verses, how many actually know what he taught? In fact, much of what people think Jesus taught, he never said. Jesus' message is not only life-changing, but world-changing. Join us as we study words that change the world, the message of Jesus. So we began this sermon series a couple of weeks ago. And as we did, we, we learned that Jesus' primary message, the central focus of his preaching and teaching was the kingdom of God, the reign of God, what happens when the world operates according to God's will. And of course, he put us in charge in this world and, and he hoped that we would yield ourselves to him. And so we would seek to do his will. We would pray and act as though we wanted God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And when that happens in our lives and in the world around us, we begin to see the kingdom of God, the world as it's meant to be. Then last week, we talked about the Sermon on the Mount. This is the single most important concentrated section of Jesus' teachings in Matthew chapter five through seven. It's the ethics of the kingdom of God. How do we live in the kingdom of God? Today, we wanna to talk about Jesus' parables. Now we've heard of Jesus' parables. They are sometimes very short little, just one line, one verse in which Jesus is comparing one thing to another thing. He's taking something that's more complicated that is the kingdom of God or life in the kingdom of God or God's love or the good news. He's taking this and he's throwing alongside it a comparison. That's what the word parabole in Greek means. It's, a, it's to throw alongside. It's a comparison between this and that. And he takes something that should be easier to understand and Jesus offers that as a way of helping people know the kingdom of God. So Jesus speaks primarily in parables. And we're going to start by looking at what a parable is and why Jesus spoke in them using parables. Then we're going to turn to two of the best known and best loved of all of Jesus' parables, parables I've preached from many times before, and you've heard many times before. And we're going to see if we might not hear a fresh new word from Jesus as we look at these parables today. But let's start with what a parable is. So I mentioned a parable or parabola in Greek is to throw alongside or to cast alongside something. So it's a comparison between this and that. Sometimes it's a simple simile. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed or like a woman who's kneading bread or, or you know, these kind of very simple comparisons. And then sometimes the parable is an entire story, a developed short story. Now, in these parables, the disciples uh, began to notice Jesus is constantly speaking to the crowd in parables. The Sermon on the Mount is a little different, although there's even a, uh, maybe a little parable in there. 
But Jesus is constantly speaking in parables. There are 31 distinct parables, unique parables in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospels. Now those are told sometimes in more than one gospel. So I think there's about 55 parables we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. No parables, interestingly enough, in John's gospel. John uses metaphors. Uh, Jesus speaks in metaphors in John's gospel, but they're not technically parables. And so no parables in John, but a lot of parables in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The gospel that has the most number of parables, Luke. He has 24 parables in the gospel of Luke. 24 of the 31 parables of Jesus appear in the gospel of Luke and 18 only appear in Luke's gospel. So there are 18 that don't show up in any other gospel, including the two parables we're gonna look at today, the parable of the good Samaritan and the prodigal son. These only show up in Luke's gospel. So these are comparisons. Now, the thing about these parables, so the disciples came to Jesus and said, Jesus, why is it? In fact, this is specifically what they said. Why do you use parables when you speak to the crowds? I mean, it seemed perplexing to them that Jesus is always talking in this, you know, in this way, a little cryptic. And, and Jesus says something that's also cryptic. It's, it's as though he's telling these parables so that they won't understand. If you read the text, it almost sounds like he doesn't want people to understand. That's not true. He wants people to understand. But the thing is, these parables, while they were meant to be a, a comparison that helps understand something that's more difficult, the parable required that you think about it a little bit. The parable, even the simplest of them, you know, seemed a bit like a riddle and you were meant to ponder it for a little while and then to be open to the Spirit's help. And, and then finally you would go, ah, now I get it. And in the parable, you're gonna find most of the parables, not all of them, but most of the parables, there is uh, often a picture of who God is. And then there's a picture of who we are uh, naturally. And then there's a picture of who we're supposed to be. There's often comparisons even within the parable between a character that gets it right and a character that gets it wrong. And so Jesus wanted us to ponder the parables, to think about them, to reflect upon them. This week, if you use your GPS, your Grow, Pray, and Study Guide, our email that we send out with daily scripture readings, you're gonna find you have a chance to read a number of parables and to ponder them to see if you understand these parables. So with that in mind, I want us to focus on these two parables. We're gonna start with the parable of the Good Samaritan. You've heard this, you've heard the phrase Good Samaritan. Maybe you don't know the parable itself. I'm guessing many of you do. But if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Now, Luke almost always helps us understand the meaning of the parable by setting up the parable. He's gonna, he's gonna explain the context in which the parable is given. And that's like a clue to help you get its meaning. So here's the context in, in verse 25. There is a legal expert, a scribe, a religious leader who studies the law, who studies the Torah and is an expert in the Torah. And he comes to Jesus to test Jesus. So we see automatically this man thinks he has all the answers. And he's just testing Jesus to see if Jesus actually gets the right answer as well, right? So then this is what he asks, what must I do to gain or inherit eternal life? Eternal life is, is life in God's kingdom and it starts now. It's not just about heaven in the future. It's about how we live, a quality of life we live today. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers the question with a question, actually with two questions. Jesus often does this. He doesn't just give the answer. He asks the question. So here's this question, back to the religious leader. What is written in the law how do you interpret it? That's your job. You're an interpreter of the law. How do you interpret the law? In answer to your question, what, do, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the lawyer responds with the two great commandments. Jesus calls them the two great commandments elsewhere. But in this gospel, it's the lawyer who's giving these two great commandments. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. Here are the answers. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your being or all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now this captures both the spirituality of the kingdom of God, that we love God with everything that's within us, and then it captures the ethics of the kingdom of God, 
we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so you may remember in the past, one of the, one of the ways people did Christian ethics was asking this question, what is the most loving thing that I can do? Right? And that's in essence what the lawyer is saying. And Jesus responds, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now we know that these great commandments do summarize, as Jesus says elsewhere, the entirety of the law and the prophets. So Jesus, you know, when asked, you know, tell us, you know, what commandments matter most? He says, these two commandments, love God with everything, love your neighbors, love yourself, summarize, they capture, they distill down everything written in the Torah and in the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, everything that God is looking for from us. Now, the religious leader gave the right answer and Jesus affirmed that, but he went on and he asked this question, uh, wishing to justify himself, Luke tells us, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? That was a legitimate question. You know, who, who am I responsible to love? Or asked another way, who don't I have to love, right? That's what he's wanting to know. And isn't that what you want to know too? Like, who am I really responsible for? I'll try to love my next door neighbor. That's great. I'll love my kids and my family and, and maybe my church. Uh, who do I have to love and who don't I have to love? And so, uh, you know, I was thinking back about this. Uh, in, in Judaism in the first century, you were required to love your neighbor who was your fellow Jew. So you weren't responsible necessary, necessarily to love the Gentile. You didn't have to love the Roman. You didn't have to love the Gentiles. You didn't have to love the Samaritans. But you did have to love your fellow Jews, particularly those in your synagogue or those in your community and those in your family. And I remember years ago, I had belonged to a church. This is before I became a pastor. I belonged to a church and that church, a small community, and they were great at loving the people in their community. I mean, they, they loved their family members, they, they, uh, but they particularly, you know, they were really great at teaching to love the people in the church. So if there's somebody who didn't have enough groceries, that, the people in that church, they went out and bought groceries to deliver to that person in their congregation. If there was somebody whose car was broken down and they didn't have money, somebody in the church would provide the funds to be able to fix the car or fix it themselves or loan them the car while it was being fixed. I mean, they, were, they just did this in a beautiful way. It was really beautiful. But the thing I never heard about in that church was that we were also called to do that for anybody outside of our local church. I mean, maybe your next door neighbor, maybe your, certainly your family members, but there was never talk about what do we do for the poor in Kansas City or in Dallas or Tulsa, you know, the various cities I've lived. There was no talk about doing this in, in the rest of the city. It was what we do to take care of ourselves within the family of God. It was beautiful, but it didn't quite answer the question in the way that Jesus answers this question with the parable of the Good Samaritan. So a certain man, Jesus says, is walking down the Jer- Jericho road. He's walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. And there are bandits that come. And this isn't surprising to anybody hearing the story. There are bandits that come and they take everything he has. They beat him and they leave him for dead on the side of the road. Now remember, Jesus is seeking to answer the question, who is my neighbor? Now, along comes a priest. And when everyone hears about the priest, the, you know, the folks listening in the crowd and, and the religious leader, the priest, I'm pretty sure they're thinking the priest is going to be the one to stop and help. But the priest doesn't stop to help. He, he scurries and hurries onto the other side of the road. And he hurries down past the man who is lying there, left for dead on the side of the road. Then along comes a Levite. Now, a Levite, uh, Levites were those, the priests were also Levites, but most of the Levites were people who worked in the temple or they had some responsibilities for leading God's people. So they could be the choir. They could be choir members. They could be worship leaders. They could be ushers or greeters, or or they might chair the finance committee or serve on the finance committee or the trustees for the temple. But they were people who were both volunteers and staff members doing God's work. Those were the Levites. And the Levite comes along and he sees the man left for dead on the side of the road and he scurries to the other side and hurries down past this site. Then along comes a Samaritan. 
Let me just remind you who the Samaritans were. I think you, you probably remember, but if you think about the relationship between Jews and Palestinians today, you have a pretty good idea of the relationship between Jews and Samaritans in Jesus' day. In fact, the Samaritans lived, Samaria was in the same place, and there's still an area called Samaria. It was in the same place that the West Bank, most of the West Bank exists today. So if you take a look at the map, you're gonna see here is the Sea of Galilee up here, and here is the Dead Sea down here and the Jordan River that connects them. And Jerusalem is right over in this area over here. And what you find is this area is largely the West Bank today. Actually comes around this way. And the area of Samaria in Jesus' day was right here. So very similar areas. The Samaritans considered themselves the true Israelites and the Jews as sort of pretenders. The Jews considered the Israelites or, or the Samaritans as half-breeds and people who had their theology just kind of off a bit. They worshiped in different places. One worshiped in, uh, in a temple. Well, the temple was destroyed just before the time of Jesus, if I remember correctly, in, uh, in Samaria. The other worshiped in Jerusalem. They did not like each other at all. They felt there was no good feelings between most Samaritans and most Jews. So Jesus tells this parable and he says, along comes a Samaritan. He's telling this to Jews. They don't like Samaritans. Along comes a Samaritan. And when the Samaritan comes along, listen, uh, Jesus says this in 1033, a Samaritan who was on a journey came to where the man was, but when he saw, saw the man who was beaten and left for dead, he was moved with compassion. The other two were moved to be afraid and they hurried past. He was moved with compassion when he saw the man. He didn't stop to ask, is this a, is this a fellow Samaritan? Because if it is, maybe I'll stop and help. No, he just saw a man who was in need and he stopped to help him. Listen to what happens next. He didn't just feel compassion. He acted upon the compassion. So he bandaged his wounds, tending them with oil and wine. Then he placed the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took two full days worth of wages and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I return, I will pay back for any additional costs. He felt responsible for his neighbor. His neighbor was anybody who was in need. He saw him as his brother and he was gonna help whether he was a Jew or a Samaritan. This is what you do if you're living in the kingdom of God. Now, what happened with the, the priest and the Levite? How could they have gotten it so wrong? And often I've shared with you my, my uh, love of how Dr. Martin Luther King addresses this and tries to understand what happened. I mean, it's possible that they saw the man, they thought he was dead. They thought for sure somebody else will stop and help. But you know what? I'm in a hurry. I've got a, a really important meeting down in Jericho. I've, I've just got to get there. Or, or maybe they were worried that if they touched a dead body, they would become richly unclean and they couldn't go about their priestly or the Levitical work that they were going to do. And again, they were certain somebody else would stop to help. How many times do we find ourselves thinking, you know, I don't have to stop and help because somebody else is going to stop and help that person whether it's something we see on the news, something we hear about in Kansas City, we see somebody with their tire, you know, uh, ruptured on the side of the road, somebody else will stop to help. I'm in too much of a hurry to stop and help. Somebody else will be responsible for this. I and mean, we understand all of that, but I love how Dr. King spoke about it. Now, the very last sermon Dr. King preached, as you may remember, was on this text. He preached it on a Wednesday night. He'd flown into Memphis, Tennessee to support the 1,300 sanitation workers who were on strike in Memphis. They were on strike because in February, February 1st, there were two men who were trash collectors. The, the rain was, was, was just you know, torrential downpour. The two guys in the front of the truck were the ones who ran the truck and operated it. And then these two guys, oftentimes, in fact, the guys who were you know, picking up the trash and tossing it in the truck, they rode in the back of the dumpster. Right, so they rode back there and these guys were sitting down there, sitting in the back. They were trying to, to get out of the rain that was just a torrential downpour. And suddenly this defective truck 
began to operate. The, the uh, hydraulics began to operate on their own without anybody touching the buttons and swept these two men into the trash truck and, and crushed them. And when it killed them, the trash collectors went to the city and said, you've got to give us better equipment and you've got to take care of these guys. They, they offered them one month's pay for their spouses, you know, for, for being crushed by this defective equipment. And, and so they said, you've got to take better care of people when they're injured and you've got to pay us a living wage and you're not paying us overtime. And many times we're working overtime and you don't pay us for that. Things have got to change. And Mayor Henry Loeb, a good Christian man, said, no, we're not going to negotiate with you about these things. And so they went on strike. Dr. King came once during the strike, and then he came back on April 3rd to stand with the striking sanitation workers. And that night in the Mason Temple, he is preaching about this parable and why he's there. And I want you to hear what he says about the priest and the Levite and the questions they've asked. I've shared this with you before, but I want you to hear it in his words. And then I want you to remember that the next day after he preached the sermon, he'd be shot to death on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. Take a listen. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by, and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That's the question before you tonight. Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to my job? Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to all of the hours that I usually spend in my office every day and every week as a pastor? The question is not if I stop to help this man in need, what will happen to me? The question is, if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? That's the question. He went to Memphis with plenty of death threats. And that night, you remember the end of the sermon, he talked about having been to the mountaintop and that he didn't know if he was going to make it with them, but he could already see what justice looked like on the other side. But that justice would never come if there wasn't good Samaritans who saw someone who was different from themselves, maybe socioeconomically or in a different city or a different race. And so that is my brother and that is my sister. I want to ask when Luke tells us these parables, Jesus tells, Jesus is always giving us multiple characters. And the question is really, which one are you? Are you the priest or the Levite? Or are you the Samaritan? About a week and a half ago, I had one of our church members, Laura Gregory came and she shared with our executive team what was going on, a report of what was happening with one of our 2030 visions. We have four big visions for the year 2030 and we're working on them all the way through this decade. And one of those was that every kid in Kansas City who is in a low-income home, low-income community, who's four years old, has access to a quality preschool education. 
Because what we've learned is that if a kid has access to preschool, a quality preschool, and they're four, they do better when they're five in kindergarten. And they're going to do better all the way through school, and the outcomes are different, and they have a better chance of escaping poverty if they get a chance to have a preschool education. But many of these kids aren't able to go to preschool. And so we set as our goal that every kid around the nine partner elementary schools we have, every one of those kids who's living in poverty has a chance to, has the, the ability to go to a preschool a quality preschool at the age of four. So we were getting a report and we were hearing all kinds of really cool things that have happened. You know, we've expanded preschool capacity at several preschools. We, uh, we had, uh, we've been working on, because one of the great problems in expanding preschool capacity is there aren't enough people who are willing to work as teachers in preschool. We find that even at Church of the Resurrections Preschool, that it's hard to find preschool teachers today. And so we, you know, we began providing funds to get uh, preschool people who are interested in being preschool teachers to get them uh, certified, to get a great education, to be able to hire and recruit outstanding preschool teachers, and then to be able to look at how could we expand classroom capacity. And then we begin to look at how do we help parents who have a little child find a preschool in their community so they can get plugged in and a whole host of other things. And one of the things I learned is that what we really need right now is volunteers to volunteer once a week. Some will volunteer every other week, but to volunteer once a week and to be able to go into the classroom to work with those lone preschool teachers to be able to help the children have a future, to help the preschool teacher, to be able to teach those kids. And so this week we talked to one of the preschool teachers at Project Eagle, one of the partnerships we have, and uh, with Lisa Vwig, who is one of our members who volunteers. I wanted you to hear the story of this particular Good Samaritan. Take a listen. When I heard that the church was going to get involved with pre-K, and start partnerships with pre-K schools, I thought, I wanna do that. Not every child in pre-K has the same skill set. Some of them need a little more one-on-one -on -one attention. And often we don't get to that because of the number of kids we have and the amount of time in a day we have. If we had more volunteers, it would help the kids get that attention that they need. And often we have time to read one story to 20 kids and it's not individualized. So volunteers would be great for that, to help us provide that individual one-on-one. -on -one. The teachers are working really hard, and so is the administration. And just to have an extra set of hands in the classroom is helpful. When the volunteers come, they give us the breath that we need to keep going. You know, if somebody's having a bad day, I may not be able to fix it, but sometimes a volunteer can. It really helps us. With 20 kids, that one body makes a difference. It gives us the opportunity to do things we normally wouldn't do in the class. We can look forward to Tuesday and tell the kids, hey, we can get out paint today. Miss Lisa's coming and she can paint with you guys. I think a weekly commitment at first, I was like, oh, wow, I don't know if I want to do a weekly commitment. But it really turned out to not be as daunting as I thought it would. It really works into my schedule very easily. I really enjoy getting to know the kids. They're each just unique little individuals and watching them learn life skills, forging their friendships, and having them learn how to problem solve. I think that's really a lot of fun. It brings a lot of joy, a lot of fun. Uh, when you go into the classroom, you feel like a rock star. They're like, Miss Lisa! And they're running to you, they're hugging you, um, and they're just excited to see you, which is a lot of fun. How cool is that? And I just got to ask you, you know, what Lisa Vwig figured out is that those four-year-olds in the urban core are my neighbor. I'm responsible for them. And I can give them a future with hope by showing up once a week and volunteering. We need 60 volunteers. 
I wonder if you'd be willing to say, tell me more information. You're not even signing up right now. I'm just asking you, would you be willing to say, tell me more about what's needed? You can go to cor.org slash next, core.org slash next, and you can sign up to get more information. And maybe God might choose you and call you to be a part of helping a child have a future with hope. And can I tell you who's going to be most blessed by that? It's going to be you. Because this is what you were made for. By the way, I was 14 when I gave my life to Christ. I was 18 when I joined the United Methodist Church my freshman year in college. And one of the things that drew me to the United Methodist Church is that in United Methodism, it's not just having a personal relationship with Jesus that counts. That's very important. Of course, we accept God's grace. We don't earn our salvation. God gives us his grace. We accept it. We have a relationship with Jesus. But then in United Methodism, we are called to live out our faith with our hands out in the world. And what amazed me was, and I'm not saying United Methodists are the only ones who are doing this, just happened to be the church I found where in the United Methodist Church, Every member is expected to live out their faith in the world. If you're a Christian, you're not yet a Christian if you're not actually living out your faith in the world. If you're not saying, how do I help my neighbor, whether they are like me, whether they look like me, whether they live in the same area that I live in, how, what am I doing to help the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven? That's a membership requirement at Church of the Resurrection. I don't know if you know that or not, but one of our, one of our five membership requirements is that you serve God with your time by serving your neighbor in our community. That's who we are as United Methodists. That's who we are as followers of Jesus. That takes me to the second of our parables. And the last one we're gonna study for today. So among the most loved parables of Jesus is the parable of the prodigal son. Prodigal means uh, wasteful or extravagant. And so the parable of the prodigal son. And let me just remind you again, Luke gives us the context. This is in Luke chapter 15. Look at verses one and two, where we read, all the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus to listen to him. The Pharisees and legal experts were grumbling, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. I mean, how interesting. You know, Jesus comes and he's going to hang out with people who are broken, non-religious, nominally religious people, people whose lives aren't all together, people who are looked down upon by religious folks, and Jesus hangs out with them. And as he's teaching and he's telling them parables, the religious folks are looking and they're wagging their fingers and saying, why does he eat with people like that? Look at him. Look at the people that he associates with. Right? They didn't get it. They didn't get the heart of God. Instead, the way they, they saw things is when they saw people who were sinners, they were doing sinful things, tax collectors and other sinners, you know, people had strayed from the path. They were pretty sure that God was angry with those folks, that the wrath of God burned against the people who were not in right relationship with God, who weren't living with God. And so they looked at them, they looked down their nose at them. Sometimes they believed in the, you know, they, they had this idea of God's grave displeasure with people who were sinful people, right? And so they disassociated from them. But Jesus had a different picture of God and he shows us that different picture of God in this parable that we're about to read. Now, Jesus tells first two parables, uh, very short parables. He said, there was a shepherd who had a hundred sheep and one of them wandered away. And did he, not, did he not leave the 90 and nine behind to go find that one lost sheep? And then he rejoiced when he found the lost sheep. And he says, that's what God is like. And then he says, there was a woman and she lost one of her 10 silver coins. She had 10 silver coins that had great value to her. And she lost one of them. And she turns her house upside down to try to find it. And then she celebrates with her friends. I found what was lost. I found my lost coin. And he says, that's what God is like. He compares God to this woman who'd lost one of her coins. And this idea that, that God is looking for the lost, right? He's not condemning them. He's not looking down his nose at them. He's going to find them. He's searching for them, trying to find them. Now, again, that's a very different picture of God 
than the religious leaders had. And many Christian religious leaders too have failed to have that picture of God in their hearts. I think about Jonathan Edwards. And when I was working on this sermon, I was reminded again of his famous sermon from 1741. Remember he was leading, you know, one of the, one of the great revivals in America. It was actually the colonies at that time, 1741. And the sermon was one many of us studied in school just to understand the literature and the context of that time period. And it was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And page after page, I went back and reread the sermon this week, page after page in the sermon, you can find it online. He talks about the wrath of God and the anger of God and, and God wanting to crush the blood out of people who were sinners. And, and you know, the whole intent, I think, was to literally scare the hell out of the people who were listening. And by the time you got to the end and you saw how angry God was and how much he deserved, you deserved his wrath and is crushing you, then what would you do except run to the altar and say, I wanna be saved from this angry wrath of God. And, and you get to the, you know, one of the, pinnacles of this sermon. And, and this is what Edward says, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some other loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. But that doesn't sound like what Jesus is telling in this parable. It's a very different picture of God. And so turn to Luke chapter 15, verse 11. A certain man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Then the father divided his estate between them, the two, the two boys. Soon afterwards, the younger son gathered everything together and took a trip to a land far away. And there he wasted his wealth, or really his father's wealth, on extravagant living. So the young boy was completely irresponsible. He lived in a completely sinful way, prostitutes, you know, all of this, this, just, this life that was all about somehow satisfying a yearning that he had, but he couldn't quite satisfy with all these things. And then we find what happens next. Look at verse 14. And by the way, the tax collectors and the sinners, they hear Jesus talking about this boy. They all recognize themselves. Like they'd all wandered away from their father, from God. He, they, they got it that the father was God. And that there were two sons and the one son who was faithful was the religious leaders who were standing there wagging their fingers and that they were the younger son. They, they all instantly understood the parable and the religious leaders understood it too. And they said, yeah, these guys down here, they're all like that younger son who went off and lived extravagantly and wastefully and squandered his father's you know, funds that he worked hard for. He made a mess of his life. They saw that and they looked down their nose even further at those, all those younger brothers there surrounding Jesus. Verse 14, Jesus continues, when the younger brother had used up his resources, a severe food shortage, a famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Remember, pigs are unclean animals. He longed to eat his fill from what the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. Now in the recovery community, what's happening to this boy is he is spiraling downward until he hits bottom, rock bottom. Verse 17, he finally hits bottom. When the boy came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, but I'm starving to death. I will get up and go to my father. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me on as one of your hired hands. So he got up, he arose and he went to his father. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, the word for repentance and how Jesus called people to repent for the kingdom of God was at hand. And the word repent in Hebrew is teshuvah, which means to come home. It means to turn around. It means to return. And so the boy decides to go home. He's repenting. He's going to apologize. He feels badly. He realizes he's made a mess of things. He's going to come home. He's going to repent. 
Now, the entire crowd is really sitting, I'm guessing, on the edge of their seats, listening to what Jesus is gonna say next. What is that father gonna do to his son when he sees that boy come back and he's squandered everything and he's made a mess of his life? What's he gonna do? What is, what is that father gonna say? How will he punish his son? Will he take him back or will he send him away? Right, and I'm guessing the religious leaders are pretty clear that the father is no wise gonna show mercy to the son who made such a mess of things. And the sinners are hoping and praying that maybe the father will take him back. Look at the second half of verse 20. While the younger brother was still a long way off, I love this. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was moved with compassion. There's that word again, the same word that the Good Samaritan has for the man on the side of the road. Now the father is moved with compassion. His father ran to him, hugged him and kissed him all before the boy even uttered a word of his apology. The father ran to him, hugged him, kissed him. And then the boy got out his apology. And once he, once he spilled the apology, this is what the father does. Does he punish him? No. The father said to his servants, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fattened calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and now he's found. That, Jesus is saying, is what God is like not the God who hangs sinners over the fire and wishes to crush the blood out of them unless they repent, but the God who runs to his lost children to hug them, wrap his arms around them, to kiss them and to show them mercy and to celebrate through a party when they finally come back home. I read this parable for the first time before I was a Christian. I was almost a Christian. I was getting really close to being a Christian. I was 14 and I read it one night before I went to sleep in my bedroom, a freshman in high school at Blue Valley High School. And when I read this parable, it got me. And I thought, if that's what God is like, maybe he's gonna be that way for me because I felt like that prodigal son. I felt like the kid who'd made a mess of things. I felt like the kid who was getting, you know, doing drugs and had announced I was an atheist and all these other things. But maybe if Jesus is right, he'll take me back too. A couple of weeks ago, I met with a young man, not a young man, a man about my age in our congregation, a few years younger than I am. And he described for me, he wanted to tell me a story and he described for me how at the age of 17, you know, he realized that the person that he was was not a person that God could accept. At least he knew the church couldn't accept him. He hoped maybe that God would accept him. His family wouldn't accept him. He walked away from God. He walked away from the church. Actually, he said he had a bit of faith still, but he walked away from the church. He knew he'd be rejected by the church. He ended up when he was 21, moved to California. He became a lawyer. He began to work in the talent industry in Hollywood. And he was, a, he was an agent. And he said he became addicted to drugs, but he you know, hit it pretty well. And so he maintained a really great career and yet an addiction to drugs. And, and, and there was no place, he didn't think, for him in the church. But there were times that he longed, he yearned to go back to church. He wanted to be with God, but he was afraid that God wouldn't accept him or at least the church wouldn't. He maintained just a little bit of faith. 38 years, he struggled with his addiction. At one point, he went back to church and he found that he was right. The church didn't want him. They didn't want people like him in that church. He ended up moving back to Kansas City. And in 2019, he said, he said, you know, I came to this place where, where I was here and I, I just was yearning for God, but I didn't think there was any church that would accept me. And my cousin said, you need to go to Church of the Resurrection. Church of the Resurrection would accept you. They would love you. Try my church, go to Church of the Resurrection. He said, I, I think I went candlelight Christmas Eve. Somehow they got my address and he said, my email address. And I, and I started getting emails from the congregation. He said, January 1st, 2020, January 3rd, 2020. And I asked him to write this down for me so I could, I could read it directly. He said, I knew I hit my rock bottom. I had no idea which way was up. I found myself 
on my knees, praying that prayer that so many people in addiction pray, God help me, God help me, God help me, over and over and over again. And he said, when I stood up, the first thing I did was I picked up my cell phone and I looked at my email. And what I saw was an email from the church, your email, Adam, I saw. And at the bottom of that email, as I scanned down, I saw that there was a recovery program for people who were broken like me. And then I looked and I saw, and to my surprise, I found out my cousin, who I hadn't seen in 34 years, was leading that program. And I decided that was a sign from God that maybe this church would accept me and would take me back. And I came back. And from rock bottom, I was welcomed back by God's extravagant love and restored. That's what happened to me. That's what God did for me through resurrection recovery and the church of the resurrection. Listen, all of us have been like the older brother judging other people like the religious leaders who are standing on the outskirts of the crowd. But here's what I know about you because I know it's true about me. I've also been the prodigal. And there are times where I've walked away from God or walked away from God's will or not done what God was expecting or done things that I know I shouldn't have done. There have been times where I was the one who desperately needed God's grace. I still need God's grace. And so do you every day. And so I'm pleading with you today. I'm pleading with you to arise and come home. I'm pleading with you to be among those who understand that you too are sinners. The religious leaders, they were sinners. The folks who were sitting at Jesus' feet were sinners. Only they understood it and the religious leaders didn't. There's an old gospel hymn that captures this invitation Jesus makes through the parable of the prodigal son. It first appears in a hymnal in 1880. It's a classic invitation hymn. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. I'm hoping you'll hear its words and that you'll come home. By the way, this hymn was also played on April 8th, 1968, at Dr. King's funeral. Take a listen. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. On the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home, ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus calling, calling, oh sinner, come Jesus is calling, calling. 
my invitation for you today. Come home. God, I need you. Please forgive me. And I offer myself to you. Accept the extravagant love of Jesus today. And then I want to invite you to remember that you too are called to be a good Samaritan, to not only receive God's compassion and mercy, but to give his compassion and mercy to your neighbor who is in need. Would you bow in prayer with me? And I'd like to invite you just to whisper this prayer under your breath. Lord, I'm a prodigal. At times I've wandered from you. Please take me back. Wash me clean and make me new. Lord, I am the older brother, judging my younger brother and showing so little mercy. Forgive me and help me to be mercy Lord, I have been the priest and the Levite, afraid of what would happen to me if I stopped to help my neighbor. Help me to be the good Samaritan who has compassion and asks, what will happen to my neighbor if I don't stop to help? Lord, I accept your extravagant mercy and offer myself to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for watching this week's sermon. We'd love for you to join us again for live worship online or in person. To learn more about Church of the Resurrection, please visit core.org. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.